the rest of you may stand for the reading of God's word. Our reading this morning is from Matthew 17, verses 1 through 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their, ha at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Happy New Year. <laughs> Tired bunch. Uh, we didn't celebrate at all last night. In fact, I forgot it was New Year's Eve uh, until about midnight when fireworks started going off. I'm like, why are, why are there explosions going around, around my house? I'm like, oh, it's New Year's Eve. It's okay. So that's, you know, that's kind of the state our family is in right now. Another state that our family is in, we're in the stage where in our parenting life with Eleanor and Vivian, we start to say these things more often. Please listen to Daddy. Please listen to Mama. Please listen. Listen. Listen or else. It's kind of these moments of desperation. And now when we're asking them to listen, I mean, we're not, we're not just asking them to like allow our words to enter into their ear and to kind of float around in their brain for a little bit and to think about it. No, when we're saying listen, we're saying like act on this, apply this to your life right now. And it's a little bit what God is commanding us a little bit this morning is to listen to his son Jesus. It's this command that we're supposed to act on and it's the command that he gives to his disciples on the mountain where Jesus is transfigured. So before we uh, go any further, let's pray and ask God's help for us to listen to him this morning. Lord, we ask, uh, because we're bad listeners, <laughs> that, we would help, that you would help us to hear your voice this morning, and that we might see more clearly your Son as the suffering Messiah, as the one whom you sent to die for us in our sins, to satisfy the wrath due to us because of sin, and that we would see him to be glorious, and that we would see that the glorious life that we have is not through man-made glory, but through suffering. 
It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So the main takeaway I want you to have this morning in this sermon is the transfiguration shows us that in order to listen to Jesus, we have to understand that the role of the Messiah is a suffering Messiah. That if we were to listen to Jesus, the role of the Messiah is a suffering Messiah. And we're going to look at this in two different ways. One, um, through the eyes of the disciples, their role, of the, what they thought the role of the Messiah was, and then through the eyes of God, what, what is his role for the Messiah. So we're going to spend a little bit of time in chapter 16 getting some context and a few verses in the Old Testament to set it up, and then we'll get to our passage in the Transfiguration. So the first section is the role of the, uh, the disciples' role for the Messiah, what they were thinking. Up until chapter 16 in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew is setting up the question and seeking to answer who is the Messiah? Who's the identity of the Messiah? Who is the Messiah? Because what Israel has been expecting is the Messiah would come for these last 2,000 years up until Jesus' time. So that's the big question. Is the promised anointed king of Israel to come and who is he? Now the word Messiah is just, it comes from the Hebrew word anointed. And the Greek word that that's, that derives from is Christos, so we get the word Christ from it, okay? So, is Jesus the Messiah? And this is the big question. In chapter 16, um, Peter has this big reveal. So there's this discussion amongst the disciples, well, who's the Messiah? Who's the Son of God? Who's the Son of God? And they're like, well, some say it's John the Baptist, some say it's Elijah, some say it's Jeremiah, or one of the other, prophet, other prophets. And then Jesus like pivots the question and directs it at the disciples. Well, who do you say the Son of Man is? And Peter says, you are. <laughs> you are the Messiah. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus accepts that. He says, absolutely, that is, that is correct. In fact, I'm going to build my church upon you, Peter. That's why he's called the rock. And one of the big interesting things about this reveal is not only is he the Messiah, but he's using the Son of the living God, which goes all the way back to this prophecy back in 2 Samuel, where God, where God prophesies through Samuel to David this prophecy. He says, I will raise up to your offspring after you, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a, to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And so this confession is both Jesus being the Messiah and the Son of the living God, and these, these, these themes are converging. And it's such a big confession that Jesus soon after that says, don't tell anyone that I'm the Christ. Don't share this with anybody. Because the role of the Messiah has huge political ramifications to it. And just to kind of dive into that, let's look at just two passages from the Old Testament that reveal some of these political overtones about what the Messiah will do when he comes. And we actually read about these during Advent. These are Advent passages. So from Isaiah 9, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace there will be no wind. So there's these government overtones, or political over overtones happening. And then in Isaiah 11, it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, 
And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. So then there's kind of these military overtones happening where God will not only establish his government and rule in peace and equity, but he'll also destroy his enemies and defend Israel from her enemies. And through this political and military um, accomplishments, glory will return uh, to Israel through the Messiah. And so this is kind of the build-up, the, the thought of Israel at the time. And so at the time of Jesus, we have the Roman government occupying Israel. The expectation was that the Messiah was to be this political military ruler, and he would set his people free from Roman oppression. There's going to be this kind of big UFC cage match between the Messiah, the Son of God, and the Roman government, and God was going to win. I mean, it's just very clear. But that wasn't God's role for the Messiah. Um, So Eleanor and Vivian are now... Uh, they're almost three, and so this Christmas has been a lot of fun because they're starting to understand the, the concept of Santa. And I generally take the girls grocery shopping. We go to Aldi, and inevitably people are stopping and asking if they're twins. I say, yes, they're twins, and, um, and they ask a few more questions, and it's a lot of fun. Well, this, this Christmas, people would stop and ask them, is Santa going to come visit your house? Is he going to visit you? And they would would respond, no, Santa, not come to our house. Santa's scary. (laughs) And they had no, the people who asked the question had no idea how to respond to that. They didn't have a category for a scary Santa, let alone try to explain to my girls why Santa isn't scary, who's just like an old man who can show up at your house at any time, and and you can leave and enter at any, you know what I mean? Like, you don't even know it, right? That is kind kind of a scary concept. But similar, but similar to the disciples, they had no concept, no category for a suffering Messiah. And this is, it, it's really highlighted, again, in Matthew chapter 16, after Peter's confession that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, the very next teaching that Jesus gives is that the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die at the hands of the authorities. Okay? Peter not having a category of a suffering Messiah pulls Jesus to the side and rebukes him and says, this will never happen. This can't be. And then Jesus rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance. You, have, you do not have your, th- your mind set on the things of God, but on the things of man. All right, so, G- so Peter comes from like this exalted state, like he's being praised for saying that Jesus is the Messiah, is the Christ, all the way to being called Satan and to get behind him. He had no category for a suffering Messiah. So what is God's role for the Messiah? The role of the Messiah for God is that it's not political or military conquering, but of suffering. And so we see it in our passage here. After the transfiguration, as they're coming down the mountain, we see in verse 12, he tells the disciples, the three disciples, that the Son of Man will suffer like the prophets before him. And similar to John the Baptist, who was beheaded. And so he was going to suffer at the hands of the, authority, of the religious authorities just like the prophets did. And then he tells them in verse 9, if we back up a little bit, not to speak of the vision, what they just saw, until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. 
which was weird to me when I first read it. I was like, man, wouldn't this be like the right time to tell the disciples like what they just experienced, this incredible glory, the voice of God coming down. Like we have confirmation that Jesus is the Messiah. And that's exactly the problem. That's exactly what the problem was, why Jesus said not to tell them. To tell the disciples what they just witnessed would only reinforce the wrong idea of what, what they thought the Messiah was, the role of the Messiah. What would happen is that they would attach the glory, that power that they witnessed on that mountain, and apply it to the military, military and political expectations of the Messiah. And so what Jesus is telling Peter, James, and John is that the vision that they just saw will not make any sense to them until after he rises from the dead. Because the way to glory is not through political or military might, but through suffering. And so let's just take a few minutes, let's walk through the transfiguration and how it relates to a suffering Messiah. So in verses 1 and 2, we see that after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Now I'm not sure, I'm pretty sure Peter, James, and John were not expecting this to happen. (laughs) with them on the mountain. And when Matthew says he was transfigured, he only uses this word once in, in his gospel. And it just means that Jesus' appearance was fundamentally, fundamentally altered and changed. Matthew writes that the change that, went ha- that happened, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And this is very much, very similar to the vision that Daniel had hundreds of years ago of the Ancient of Days. So when he looked up, Daniel looked up, and he saw the Ancient of Days, and he took his seat, and his clothing was as white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. And similar to John's experience of the resurrected Jesus in the book of Revelation, in chapter 1, he says, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like the flame of fire. So we have this Old Testament vision of the ascended Lord come to life in his transfiguration, and now we have two Old Testament prophets show up. We have Moses and Elijah. And for Peter, this is just getting even better. It's like, let's keep this party going. (laughs) Um, I was kind of playing this out in my head, what this might look like. And with Peter, James, and John, and the transfigurations happening. And right now, you notice they're not flat on their face. They only get on their face in fear when God shows up and says, this is my son. So he's like, well, this is glorious. And I'm sure like James and John were like, Peter, you got to say something. <laughs> say something, man. He's like, all right, well, let's build some tents. All right, let's stay. This is good that we're here. Let's build some tents and stay. Now, before we rag on Peter, since I've been kind of ragging on him a little bit, um, this is not out of the ordinary. We see all throughout the Old Testament when the angel of the Lord shows up, or messengers of the Lord show up, people are always offering food and hospitality. Hey, come spend the night, because they knew this was a special encounter, and they wanted to keep this going. And so too with Peter. But he just didn't understand what was really going on here. So let's talk a little bit about Moses and Elijah. They're both significant Old Testament prophets. For Moses, it represented the law, and for Elijah, it represented all the prophets. And so in a way, it's saying... And when, Jesus and Elijah, or when Moses and Elijah show up and they're talking to Jesus, it's like what they have preached and what their ministry was about is coming to fulfillment in Jesus. 
Now, I think we can make that theological conclusion because what happens a few verses later. So after Jesus comes down and says, this is my son, listen to him. The disciples fall on their face and they're afraid, they're terrified that they're going to die. And then Jesus walks over and he says, rise, have no fear. And when they look up, they see Jesus only. As if to say that the ministry, the reason why Moses and Elijah aren't there is that the ministry that they had is consummated in Jesus. And now we need to look at this command that, Jesus said, that God said to the disciples, listen to him. And similar to the vision that relates back to Daniel, this also, this, word, this phrase, listen to him, has this theological thread that goes all the way back to Moses. So Moses, when he gathered all Israel, he gave them, he gave them a few sermons, and in this sermon, um, he said that there were gonna, there's going to be a prophet like me that's going to come from amongst you, that God is going to raise up, and it's to him you need to listen to. And so when God says, listen to him, it says God is saying, the man that Moses prophesied about, this is my verbal confirmation that this is the man that you need to listen to. So this is, this is what, like, again, the transfiguration, there's so much going on in this passage. And this is a momentous part where the prophet that is going to come from you, from the people of God, prophesied by Moses, I'm giving you my verbal confirmation that this is my son and you need to listen to him. This is him. But the command to listen to him also has the significance of what's going on in the present. Not as this is just connected to the Old Testament, what Moses prophesied about. But Peter, James, and John need to listen to him because they need to reframe their idea of what the role of the Messiah is. And the role of the Messiah is a suffering one. And that the way to glory that you just experienced is not through political or military might, but through suffering. The way to glory is to follow the suffering Messiah. The way to glory is through the cross. And this makes a lot of sense because in just the verses just before the transfiguration, we see Jesus telling his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Um, has anyone seen, I'd love to see a show of hands. Has anyone watched the Netflix original, The Crown? little bit. Oh, good. I'm not the only one. I'm the only guy in the room that watched it. Uh, the, crown, uh, the crown follows the, the early beginnings of the reign of the Queen Elizabeth uh, II, and throughout it highlights um, her relationship with Winston Churchill. And so Winston Churchill, towards the end of the series, he's turning 80 years old, and he's still in Parliament. He's still in political life. And so the uh, English Parliament uh, decided to commission a portrait to be painted of him uh, by Graham Sutherland. I believe this is in 1954. And he was a modernist painter, which was kind of a big thing then. And Winston got very nervous because he didn't know what he was going to look like. And um, he ended up hating it. He ended up hating the portrait because what it showed was a, a Winston Churchill, a man who suffered, a man who lived through two world wars, decades of political service, a man who had to bury his own daughter when she was only two years old. 
And he was looking for something that was a bit more man-made glorious. He wanted to be painted in maybe his robes being a knight of the garter or in a military uniform, something that was way more majestic. But Graham Sutherland painted a man he saw right through the facade, just showed an old man who suffered during his lifetime. He did a lot of work. And later, Winston and his wife burned the portrait. Absolutely burned it. But this revealing of the portrait was televised. You can go back and actually see what it looks like. It really is a beautiful picture of suffering, and it's like a very realist. So, so anyways, I digress. So we often misunderstand, like Winston and like Peter, we often misunderstand the way to glory. And we, off, you know, we all are glory seekers, but we often misunderstand how to get to that glory or we pursue the wrong time of glory, wrong type of glory. Susan and I, uh, many of you know, we moved to Hinsdale in August, so just a few months ago, and we've loved living in Hinsdale. We've met so many neighbors. There's so many, um, like, hey, let's get all the kids together and play type of stuff, and it's been awesome. Uh, the other thing that we've noticed about living in Hinsdale is that it's, it's a good representation of man-made glory. The western suburbs in general are a good representation of man-made glory, but Hinsdale tends to highlight it with its very large homes. They're beautiful homes. They're gorgeous homes made with the finest material and finest craftsmanship. But if we pull the veil back, like if we do in any of our homes, or throw a video camera in it to record what happens during the day, we would see that the lives that we try to portray to one another through our homes, through our landscaping, or what we wear, the cars we drive, it aren't, isn't really that glorious. If you, if you actually, if the video camera might show that we are actually absolutely stressed out through large mortgages, high taxes, uh, trying to figure out a way to pay for kids' colleges. Uh, we might have attained some sort of glory, uh, but we find them lacking and wanting. There might be sexual frustrations within the marriage, and so you start to look outside the marriage to find sexual fulfillment. The video cameras might show that our bodies and minds are failing and decaying because of sin. We have anxious kids because we put so much demand on them for academic performance. And like Winston Churchill, we hide behind our achievements in order to project our own glory to hide our suffering. But we need to know that glory is through sacrifice. Glory looks like letting down the facade, like Grand Southern did, painting the real you, and inviting people in to that suffering to help. Glory looks like living below our means so that we can be more generous with our money and with our time. Glory looks like saying no to activities in your life to create space for serving your neighbor, the refugee, the immigrant. Glory looks like saying no to activities and homework and sports on a Sunday morning so that you can create space in your life for your family to worship together on a Sunday morning. Glory looks like sacrificing personal profit in order to pay your employees well. A glorious GPA, a grade point average, looks like hard work, long hours in the library and perseverance, and not taking the shortcut of cheating. Glory looks like sacrificing your reputation in order to stand up for someone who's being bullied. Glory looks like sacrificing your reputation in order to stand up against derogatory terms being 
said about women in the locker room or through text messaging. For children here, glory looks like obeying your parents, even when it's not convenient for you. Glory looks like seeking the righteousness in the workplace, even when it comes at personal cost. And I just want to take one second and speak to um, maybe the unbeliever or the skeptic here this morning. I know that Christianity can be a hard thing to embrace, and passages like this morning make it even more weird and strange to embrace. But I want to let you know that um, at Trinity, this is a safe place for us to recover as glory seekers. Because we at Trinity, I think it's a safe place for us to explore the sufferings that we endure on a day-to-day and week-to-week basis because we, we found out that true glory is following our suffering Messiah. True glory is following our... And we're not good, we're not perfect at it, but I think there's a vulnerability here that would welcome you uh, to join us in that experience on a Sunday morning or during the week. And at the end of the day, we as a church, we're trying to follow Jesus and to follow the command that God said to listen to him. And like Peter and like Winston Churchill, we often chase after man-made glory. And so what I'd like for us to do is we, we provide a space in our liturgy to confess that sin to one another and to God in hopes that we can realign, realign our desires uh, and the way we pursue glory uh, in our lives. So let's take a moment uh, to pray and I'll lead us in our confession. Lord, we come to you this New Year's Day desiring to start this new year well. We make our plans and plot out our maps and realign our desires, only to end up frustrated. For we often end up designing our plans with the goal to save ourselves rather than denying ourselves and picking up our crosses and following you. Forgive us, we pray. For when we neglect to listen to you regarding care for orphans and widows, loving our enemies, serving our neighbor, and working unto the Lord and not for men, forgive us, we pray. For the times we seek to save ourselves through good works, rather than seeing that your son's suffering, death, and resurrection as the only true path to salvation. Forgive us, we pray. so like Peter, James, and John, when Jesus told them to look up and they saw only Jesus, lift up your heads and hear the good news about Jesus. For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, and when he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Thanks be to God.